morning. Welcome to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, my special guest is NF. Excuse me, NHL linesman, 30 years as an NHL linesman, I have to say. Kerry Frazier, special guest with me, my good friend Dan Vaughn, who is sitting in with me because he is a puckhead like myself. Kerry, welcome to the show, and I appreciate your patience, and I'm sorry about the wrong number part there. <laughs> Not a problem, John. Good talk to you and Dan, and uh, one correction, uh, I was a referee. Referee, what am I doing? Jesus. 30 years. Well, we both know I've had the flu for the entire week, so anything that I say, please not hold against me throughout this interview process. I'm not making you nervous, <laughs> am I, John? No, we've had such great conversations, Kerry, the last <laughs> couple of weeks. I feel like you've become a friend. Hold on, Dan's got a thing to throw in there. Kerry, uh, I listened to him, and I corrected him before you did. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot, Dan. So there we I've, go. I've, I've watched you for years, admire all your work. I always thought that you were, like, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the top referee in the NHL. Well, I, I appreciate that uh, accolade and honor, and uh, it was a terrific career, and uh, maybe we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about it. Ah, I would love to, yeah. And I also, uh, I also got to compliment you on your hair. Oh, that, I was going to get into that one later, because I have to say, <laughs> Kerry reminds me of my father. My father had perfect hair throughout the 70s and 80s, and I used to look at my father and go, you know, Dad, you're just like... This you know this referee over here, Mr. Frazier. I mean, his hair is perfect, and that was always a running gag. But, Kerry, your hair was perfect, and just to kind of story, did you do anything special with it? In all honesty, to keep it that way throughout the game, I mean, it looked like you never broke a sweat. Well, you know, it's it's. Uh, I'd rather be known for having perfect hair than blowing calls. But uh, that's true. I uh, I did twelve Stanley Cup finals over the course of my career, and and I uh, would take each of our children. We have seven. Uh, at various, uh, each would get a chance to go to a Stanley Cup final game, and of course, ritual is pregame nap in the afternoon. And I took our oldest son Ryan when the Jersey Devils were winning a Stanley Cup, and uh, we laid down for our afternoon nap and, and woke up, and my hair like looked like it was in a, a perfect shape. And uh, Ryan's uh, had bedhead, and and he said, "Dad, do you sleep with a mold on that head? It's just perfect." That's, you know, one of the blessings of uh, having the national treasure on top of my head. Well, it de- you know, but back in the day, too, before they had helmets, you know, it was easier to identify the players, the, the referee, the linesmen, with the flowing locks as you guys came flying around the rink. It's a shame you can't go back to those days. Obviously, for obvious reasons, you can't. Too, way too dangerous. But back in the day, you could definitely identify a player by, by his hair. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's true, and the, the personality of the game was allowed to flourish a little more. Uh, I've had conversations with Craig McTavish, who was the last guy not to wear a helmet as a player in the yep. NHL, Absolutely. and Wayne Gretzky, who wore that little blue Jaffa helmet that uh, really provided no protection. And the three of us all believed that you develop a sense of radar, uh, an extra sense that, uh, of protection and awareness uh, when you aren't that much protected and they're all, of course, gladiatored up now, and you see the high hits and uh, visors and shields and, and elbows and sticks flying. And uh, that, I think, is, is in part a result of, of some of the uh, gladiator-type protection that players wear. And uh, we can't go back. It doesn't make sense to expose yourself uh, to potential injury and serious injury. But those were the days where players respected each other a little more than I see happening in, in the modern day. Well, things are so much faster. You and I talked about this a few times over the last couple of months in our private calls. The, the game is so different, and it is one of the reasons I brought my friend Dan in with me, because Dan goes back to the original six growing up. He remembers those games. Dan loves 
a one nothing game, a two nothing game, a nothing nothing game, nothing nothing <laughs> game. Where see, I come of age. The '70s are there for me. I'm a young kid, but really the high flying '80s and and the high scoring of Edmonton and the league itself. It's it's come so far. And and I wanted to ask you, what's the biggest change other than speed? Because that's obvious. Size, well, size. Would you say size, Kerry? Since you know, since when you first came into the league, and then you know, then your retirement in 2010. It's a combination of three things: speed, size, and athleticism. The the modern day player has been brought to a new level of athleticism uh, through a whole bunch of things: training techniques, uh, dedication, the equipment that that is so much better. Uh, and that has created a much faster game, a harder hitting game, uh, and there are some some pitfalls that have resulted uh, from the combination of those three things. It's certainly an exciting game for the fans to watch, and the fact that through the evolution of the four decades uh, that I was part of the NHL, uh, the game changed considerably uh, it, through through different rules that were implemented, uh, the goonery that, that we saw, the, the brawling that took place in the 70s that uh, a lot of fans wish would come back. But oh, yeah. that, that was taken out uh, through uh, you know legislation of rules and, and us imposing them. And, of course, I think in the modern NHL, the, the new NHL that resulted from the first lockout, it was uh, getting rid of the obstruction, the restraining tactics that ground the game to a halt and allowed the players to move with speeds, particularly through the neutral zone, on the four check, and that was uh, uh, created an exciting brand of, of uh, a spectator sport uh, for the fans. Do you go ahead, Dan? Go ahead. Do Do you feel, uh, Kerry, that maybe uh, I, I get it? Like John said, I'm an old head. Uh, I'll go back to uh, when the Jersey Devils won their first cup, and they had the quote unquote trap. I was there. And yes. And I watched it, and I hate the Jersey Devils, but uh, I wish I, w- I wish half of them were on the Flyers. But at the time, I hated them. And I used to sit and listen to the uh, talking heads here and the fans calling in and saying how terrible it was. But if you go back and you were there, uh, the two cups for the Flyers with Fred Shiro, we were basically doing the trap then. Well, there was a combination of trap and, and thuggery that, uh, and intimidation right. uh, with the, the Flyers, certainly the Broad Street Bullies, had gained that reputation, and, and they created fear uh, that uh, was used to their advantage, uh, and uh, they, they could play, too. I mean, they had, they had the components all put together, and Fred Shiro brought them together uh, in a system that they all believed in. But, uh, you know, they had toughness. They had Bobby Clark leading them and, and Bernie Perrant in goal and, and uh, strength in the back line, uh, you know, with, with uh, the Watson brothers. And it, um, it really was a combination, like the New York Islanders that I saw win four Stanley Cups, yes. where they kept... Bill Torrey kept putting the components of the puzzle together, and, and that's what it takes. It takes leadership. It takes grit. It takes skill. And so where the Islanders had a Mike Bossy to put the puck in the net, they had a Brian Trache and a John Tonelli and some grinders that could get the puck to the guys that could put it in the net. And they also had big Clark Gillies, uh, big Jethro that uh, you know could take on uh, anybody uh, if, they, uh, if they dared 
to challenge. Uh, and so that that uh, is how championship teams are made. And as we start today, back to the, the NHL, uh, after a, yet another lockout, it'll be interesting to see how that 48-game schedule is going to affect different teams as they have put their components and parts of the puzzle together. I see young legs uh, in a 48-game uh, schedule where they're playing every other day. Uh, it's almost going to be last man standing at the end. Whoever survives with the least amount of injuries and the best goaltending uh, is going to be successful this year. Well, let me step back here. I wanted to ask you, going back to the... To the um Elimination of the neutral zone trap after the first lockout, excuse me, <clears throat> and the speed of the game picking up. Now, there, there's maybe have brought some problems with that. There's been more concussions since the uh, lockout back in 05, and there's been more upper body injuries as far as shoulders and so forth because of the impact on following through with a check. What are your thoughts? on going to an Olympic-size ice rink at the, NHL, at the NHL level. Now, take the money out of it. We know that would cost money because they'd lose those first couple rows of seats. But do you think it would make a difference in the safety and the productivity of the game? Well, it would certainly enhance safety, but I think it would diminish the product. Okay. Take the, take the money of the seats aside. I did the Olympics uh, the first time uh, the uh, professional players and officials were allowed to do it in, in 1998 in Nagano, Japan. I was on the wide ice surface. It's a little bit shorter, but it's a lot wider. And there was so much less body contact. Um, teams would adapt to using all of the ice. Uh, and uh, it, it just minimized the body contact. I think our game, when it's played at its purest level, combines the speed, the athleticism, the skill, but also the, the physicality of it. We can't take that out. There needs to be quick forecheck and hard hits. I think, to answer your question, John, what needs to be done is that we've allowed the, the creeping in, the, the snowball started to roll down the hill, mm-hmm. where players were checking up. And they, that's resulted in upper body injuries, and particularly those above the neck. <laughs> Players have shown a definite lack of respect where their opponent is vulnerable. Um, I, in the early days that we talked about, uh, Dan and John, I would see a player that would be vulnerable against the glass, and an opponent coming in to, to hit him, he could have just pasted him against the glass. But I heard him say, heads up, I'm coming. And he would take... Uh, a path just off the center of the guy's numbers and hit the shoulder, but also as much of the boards and the glass and a big noise would result and the fans would go wow and and cheer. So there was that respect. I saw players grab a guy, give him a hug as he carried him into the boards. He still did his job. He finished his check, but he didn't put the player who was vulnerable in a in a health situation. We're looking now at the big hits and the train wrecks Trying to get on uh, Sports Center and and uh, you know the the uh, post game uh, shows, and there needs to be an element of respect. I watched Alexander Ovechkin last year in the playoffs uh, hit Dan Girardi. He didn't even have the puck. Neither one of them had the puck. It was a loose puck. They were going to collide, and Ovechkin launched himself. He's already six foot five almost, and he launched himself two feet into the air and got Girardi in the head. Ended up getting a two-minute penalty for it. We've got to keep players' skates on the ice. We've got to get back to checking through the body mass, which is the proper way to check, and not recoil 
bend your knees and check up, which only can result in contact above the shoulders. Good, Dan. I agree with you wholeheartedly, Kerry. Uh, one of the things I've noticed in my years following hockey, going back to the original six, uh, as we got more and more protective equipment, people got more and more reckless. You're right. There was a lot more respect. Uh, back in, uh, again, even after the first expansion with the Broad Street Bullies days and, and Battleship Kelly with, this, with the uh, uh, Penguins, there was more fighting, but there was less serious injuries. Do you think there's a correlation between the added equipment to where people just feel that they can be reckless and not worry? Like there was, there was not high sticks to the heads back then. Well, Dan, you're bang on with the equipment. And uh, uh, if you looked at a pair of shoulder pads from the, say, 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and, and current, you would see such a vast difference. Players would feel the check when they delivered it based on the equipment. So when you hurt yourself throwing a, a train wreck kind of hit and a careless, reckless hit, you're not going to do it. This uh, armor that's being worn today, you can really inflict some punishment, but you don't feel it. You I catch a the- guy not looking, he, he's going to get hurt. You don't even feel the impact. I call it the Barry Bonds effect because if you go back to Barry Bonds in baseball, the man wore a suit of armor when he went up the home plate, could lean over the plate, take, take out that corner, and have no fear of a 100-mile-per-hour fastball coming down at his elbows because he was protected. And I think Dan makes a good point, and, and Carrie, you're following up with him on it. I think you can go overkill with the equipment, much like they did with goaltenders there for a while, where they started to look like the Michelin tire man. Back, you know, when Garth Snow took up, you know, ninety percent of the net just by standing there, and you know, Garth Snow's a pretty big guy to begin with at six three, two hundred pounds. He's a great guy. But I mean, I mean, the guy admitted. He, I mean, basically, he was pumping himself up. It's 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 unbelievable. And and uh, Bryn's giving me the high sign to roll into a break. You're listening to Lifeline Edited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is retired. NHL official Kerry Frazier. We are talking all things hockey because we're thanking God that hockey is back again. So we're turning it on again back in a few moments. Westchester Area Communities That Care's Youth Leadership Council is a group of dedicated youth leaders exhibiting positive behaviors that are committed to living a substance-free lifestyle while raising awareness related to destructive decisions in the Westchester community. This year, the Westchester Youth Leadership Council created a positive choices campaign called Stay Classy, Stay Sober. The 2009 Pennsylvania Youth Survey told us that 7 out of 10 Westchester Area School District students stay classy. This program has been funded by a grant through the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board. To learn more, visit us at www.wcctc.org. Stay classy, Westchester. Hey, it's Matt from Rivers Monroe. Check out Soundstage on WCHE 1520 Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. with new host Mike, my good friend from Rivers Monroe, as he talks with upcoming local artists and musicians. Again, that's Soundstage every Thursday at 4 p.m. with Mike Monroe on WCHE 1520 AM, the talk of Chester County. 
But is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? So is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? Is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? Is it time for dogs to have their own social network of their own? Is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? Good question. Man, you ask good questions. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. That's a great question. First time I've heard it on about 15 interviews. I'm very thankful to ask that. If you're looking for the latest in fashion, beauty, health, lifestyle, and entertainment with unique and interesting guests and the questions that you're always wondering that no one asks then tune into the Bryn project every wednesday at 12 15 and every saturday at 12 and you can stay updated with the show at facebook.com forward slash the Bryn project that's the Bryn project on wednesdays at 12 15 and saturdays at 12 hi this is Reed drummond also known as the pioneer woman for wche radio 15 20 a.m Welcome back to Life on Edim, your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is retired NHL official, Kerry Frazier. He's written the book, The Final Call. You can pick that up on Amazon.com. He's got a lot of great stories of his 30 years inside the NHL, stories, uh, calls that he made he felt he shouldn't have made, calls that he felt he missed, players, uh, father figure roles, you name it. It's the, There's a story there for everyone and anyone who is a fan of the NHL. And, Dan, I'll let you know we switched here. You are the first person, Dan. Your cologne is making Bryn's face and her eyes water. Oh, this is amazing. I can't believe it. Carrie's here going, I can't, what are they having this conversation for? But this is a true conversation. I had to switch seats with you to separate the two of you. Oh. So there you go. I feel well, bad. you know, Ron Dugay, when he played for the New York Rangers, he, he didn't sweat very much. He worked hard, but he just, he had that hair flowing, and, yeah. and uh, we called him Disco Duke. And uh, even when he'd get close, he'd be in a fight, his sweat smelled like cologne. He, he was a pretty smelling player. It so was the maybe, 70s. It was yeah. the 70s and early 80s. It was the Jordache look and all that stuff. <laughs> yes, he had, right. he, he had the mullet. He had the mullet. Wasn't he married to Carol Alt for a while? No, I, no, that's Ron Gresh. Oh, that's no. Ron Gresh. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. But, but, but they partied, though. No, yeah, man. They, they all Duke party. Married a, those, those married a supermodel. Those, yeah, those, those Rangers were party hard. Well, it's New York City. I mean, yeah. you, I, I was going to say a little later. Uh, when I'm done with the, I'm finished with the book. You got to read uh, Theo Fleury's book now, Dan. Okay. Oh wow, that's another one. Carrie uh, uh, and I've talked about that a lot. And let me tell you, when I'm, I'm, I'm finished. I'll give it to you later on today when we get back to my place. Okay. But Carrie, uh, I want to ask you, what makes one want to become an official? I mean. It really is, from my perspective, and I've played high-end sports, and I'm a very competitive person, I like to have a definitive answer at the end of the day, a win or loss. I want something I can check off. What makes someone like yourself? I mean, you're a very competitive person. If you read your book, you come across as very competitive. Um, you're outspoken, a man who knows himself, knows what his belief systems are, and that's a great thing. It, it, I don't know how it lends itself, though, to being a referee. Can you explain that part of your personality? Well, it really does, because uh, in a controlling kind of environment, you need to be in control. You have to figure it out. The first thing you better have, uh, if you're going to get into officiating of, of any sport, is a love of the game. Uh, we all want to be players, uh, of course, first and foremost. Uh, but those avenues, uh, we, we top out at a certain level. You know, water can only fill the glass so high, and, and uh, I had uh, a glass that was half full. 
in terms of my playing. I played to the Junior A level in Canada. I was a good little player. I was undrafted in 1972 when I finished playing Junior A. The WHA started that year as well as, of course, the NHL. And, and uh, I was at a crossroads. I had a bunch of college scholarship offers uh, in the U.S. Uh, I decided not to take the academic route. And I saw that while the game would be closed off for me as a player, officiating would be an opportunity and an option that I could pursue. I went to a referee school that summer. The NHL scouts for officials just like they do players. And I was scouted at that five-day referee school in uh, the summer of 1972. Two days later, I was invited to the NHL training camp for officials uh, that year. And uh, they liked what they saw. They put me in the American Hockey League for a year in seasoning and and then signed me to a contract uh, the following year. So my path was very quick in... uh, in how I entered the officiating, I didn't do minor hockey and and go through the the systems uh, that would be available to most guys. I was in the right place, right time, and had an aptitude for the game as a player and the understanding that a player would feel, and they felt they could teach me the rest. But in terms of our personality, John, and our mm-hmm. character, and I I believe you share the same same attribute. We're decision makers. Uh, we can take control of situations. We're not intimidated in stressful situations. My God, I had death threats uh, over the course of my career, and I wrote about them in the yeah, final Yeah, you did. Call. Yeah, you did. <laughs> and, you know, I was told that in St. Louis that night uh, in the playoffs, game, uh, game six of the Western Conference final uh, between Calgary Flames and, and the St. Louis Blues, the police grabbed me at the end of the second period uh, with the Blues down by three goals and ushered me off the ice and told me, they had a call that came from within the St. Louis arena. The guy said he had a gun, and if Fraser came out for the third period, he was going to shoot me. Now, that's a reality check for you. What do you do? Do you go back on the ice? I said to the police officer, there's no option here. I I agree with you, and I would have done the same thing. But this leads me now to to another question, because I'm very impressed with this aspect of you. Again, we've talked a few times. You're a very strong man of faith. You're, yes. you're a very devout Catholic. Yep. And how does your faith play into your being such a long-term successful referee? Were you able to draw upon your faith at moments where, you know, maybe the S was going to hit the fan and there had to be someone of some reason there? Well, Were you able to draw on, the, on that faith you have? Well, John, first of all, I wasn't always a Catholic. I'm a Catholic convert, and, mm-hmm. and I was called to the faith in 1995 through a very mystical series of very mystical events. Uh, God uh, woke me up. Uh, he, I was such a stubborn guy and obstinate. And, and uh, if you looked up uh, prior to that uh, in the dictionary, the word sinner, you'd see my picture. Uh, so uh, once he woke me up and knocked me off my horse and, and led me on a path, uh, I, I wanted to play for the right team. Uh, that was a commitment that I made um, with my free will. I had been playing for the other guy for too many years. So in bringing that faith and living out that faith uh, and being a daily mass communicant, and and, uh, I learned an awful lot. There was a lot of growth for me personally, and it was reflected in the way I approached situations of stress on the ice. I tried to be a part of the solution and not part of the problem. And you talked about Theo Fleury. That, for me, that story that I wrote uh, in the final call about 
my experience with Theo, who was an angry, angry man, and I don't blame him after we read, no, uh, you know, his book. Once you read his book, you understand where the anger comes from. Well, he was a victim of, of child, child molestation. Abuse. Yeah, yeah, from from a, a junior coach that was a national hero in Canada, yep. who's now in prison where he rightfully should. Graham be. James, we're going to name yeah, it. Graham, Graham James. James, exactly. And uh, Theo uh, carried this burden, and uh, I was his target. I was a little guy. He hated authority, and boy, we fought like cats and dogs. And, and uh, I uh, recount a, a situation in uh, the 1996 Stanley Cup playoffs in Chicago when he was playing for the Calgary Flames, and he unloaded on me, threw his helmet at me, cussed at me, challenged me out in the parking lot, and then the good story. Now, that's 1996, and remember, John, in 1995 is when these series of mystical events happened, and I was called to faith. So the devil was challenging and putting people in my face like Theo Fleury and used as a vehicle to try and get me off the path. I, I in, in humility, uh, just endured it, threw him out of the game, did my professional duty. But fast forward four years, and Theo is now signed with the New York Rangers, uh, $5 million a year, I believe, as a free agent. And he was troubled, and he had just been released that season, 2000, from the NHL Substance Abuse Program. And it was a game just before Christmas, and he was just back. The St. Louis Blues were playing, and Tyson Nash was a second-year NHL player who was an agitator, a real S disturber on the ice. And he wounded Theo at the end of that first period with his words. He carved them deep in his heart, and Theo came to me with tears in his eyes. The same guy that had thrown his helmet at me and cursed me and, and challenged me constantly. And I had a choice, John and Dan. My choice was, do I say to this guy who had tears in his eyes because of a verbal assault from a player, a trash talk, do I say, you know what, it looks good on you. Remember all the times you did it to me? I saw a wounded individual in front of me. I wanted to hug him. I wanted to take his pain away. And I arranged an apology at the start of the next period from Tyson Nash through his coach, Joel Quenville at the time. And boy, you talk about powerful and that story, how it finished. We often wonder, at least I do, can we make a difference? Can we make a difference in what we do, whatever it might be? And in this story, 10 years later, when I was writing the book and I called Tyson Nash and I wanted to share that moment, the phone got quiet. Tyson said, Carrie, that was a life-changing experience for me. It was career-altering. And he told me about it. And I wrote it in his words in the book, what that event meant to him. That's powerful for me. That sums up what we can do in our jobs, in our daily jobs, and even in entertainment situations and the, the hostile environment sometimes of professional sport. I don't know. You know, you, 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 when I read your accounts of Theo, and then I read Theo's book. Um, uh, again, we've talked a lot about him. Uh, I've come away with a totally different take on the man. Your experience with him changed me, and my reading his book has changed me. And I'm looking forward to possibly setting up an interview with him to, to go you know, deeper into what happened to him, to educate more people on what child sexual abuse is about, especially in a situation such as his. Utterly amazing. We're going to roll into another break. Today, my guest is Kerry Frazier. He was a former NHL official 30 years. He wrote a book, The Final Call. Today, we are celebrating the return of hockey. We'll be back in a few moments. 
Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give Dad his medicine. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give Dad his medicine. At 6 a.m., I make his breakfast. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give Dad his medicine. At 6 a.m., I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m., I shower. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give Dad his medicine. At 6 a.m., I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m., I shower. I start laundry at 8. At 10, we go for a walk. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. For those dealing with the daily struggles of caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community with experts and other caregivers for advice, tips, and support. Together, let's help each other better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Start your mornings with the all-new WCHE Morning Magazine. It's a healthy dose of all things Chester County and beyond. Local news, local traffic reports, local sports results, interviews with local newsmakers, and the local entertainment scene, plus national guests, along with whatever you're talking about around the water cooler, plus your phone calls. Hosts Doug Sterling and Bill Mason give you all the info you need to face the day with a smile on your face. That's the all-new WCHE Morning Magazine, weekdays from 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. on the Talk of Chester County, WCHE 1520 a.m. and streaming around the world on WCHE1520.com. Hi, everybody. I'm Summer Sanders, Olympic gold medal swimmer, and you're listening to WCHE 1520 a.m. Welcome back to Life on Ed. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is former NHL official Kerry Frazier and my good friend Dan Vaughn. We are puckheads. We are talking hockey today in honor of the return of the NHL. Dan, take away. You got a question for Kerry, and I like the question. Go ahead, shoot. All right. Uh, quick question because I know you were around through uh, both systems. How much better do you feel personally it was when they went to the two referees versus one? Well, I think it was necessary, first of all, because of the evolution of the game and, and the removal of the red line. Uh, when I did the Olympics in Nagano in 98, there was one referee on the ice. And they, at that time in the international game, had removed the red line for a two-line offside pass. So you had to fly, and no human can skate as fast as the puck is passed and on a quick end-to-end rush with lots of pass speed. Uh, one man can't catch it. We had to uh, implement a two-referee system because of the restraining that was taking place. And if you can envision, uh, Dan and John, broadcasting a game with one camera angle, and that camera angle was always following the play, looking through the backs of players, you would miss so much. The viewer would miss so much. Sometimes, most often, the front view is the best view. And if you think about a player reaching around and hooking a player, uh, you're going to see that best from the front uh, as opposed to the back. And uh, that's, it was really necessary to implement the two-referee system. That being said, I think there was a need for us to grow and get better so that we worked in tandem and in sync 
similarly to a defensive pairing on the ice for a team that knows what the other is doing and, and positions himself and covers the gaps uh, so that there are no gaps uh, in, in coverage uh, on the ice. And uh, they do have to get better at it uh, because no two players think alike and neither do no two officials think alike. Now, Kerry, you know, we're sitting in the stands as fans and the game's going on and there's a call and it's yelled out back and forth. Well, here comes the makeup call. Now, people being human as they are, referees, linesmen, everybody, is there such a thing as the makeup call? Is there a way you might... Uh, a play might have been missed, uh, something blown, and or whatever, and there's a makeup call. Is that a true statement? Yeah, it is. Okay. It happens, and and I, I, you know, that's the honest answer. I, I learned that two wrongs don't make a right, and I've when I've blown a call, and a player has come to me or a coach, and I say, "I'm sorry, you're right. I missed it. I blew it." The next statement out of their mouth would be, well, you owe us one. There you and go. I would right away say, <laughs> sorry, please do me a favor and kill this off because two wrongs don't make a right. If I, if I make that call up right away, everybody mm-hmm. in the building knows it. Yep. I've lost credibility with the players that, that I strive so hard uh, to become credible with, to gain their respect and their trust, and it's just... You got to fight that human nature uh, in in your objective to be fairness uh, to create fairness. Okay. You, you have to fight it off. Okay. Now, how about going into the third period? Is the, the is the whistle put away? As we'll say in the stands. Well, okay, it's late. It's going into the third period now. It's a two-one game. We exp- the whistle's going to be put away now. Do things become less called as you get yeah, deeper into the game? Uh, that unfortunately happens as well, and and you know what I what I tried to do, uh, I was I always tried to get the players to play on my terms, okay. without having to lay the hammer down. I wanted them to play, go, flow. Uh, Rick Tockett, for example, when he was a young captain with the uh, Philadelphia Flyers, he was like 22 years old, and he was very emotional and often out of control. He played hard, but he had that adrenaline rush that just. He flew off the handle, and he was getting a lot of misconducts. And he approached me in a game in the Spectrum one night, uh, just in that vein of, of yelling at me. And I put my hand up, open palms, and I said, Whoa, talk, please, calm down. And I spoke to him in a calming kind of way, but I, in an assertive way, and said, Listen, you are a great player. You're a leader on this team. You're the captain. Lead by example. But I said, you can do that best when you're on the ice and not in the penalty box. And I want to keep you on the ice. To do that, if you have a question for me, come approach me, ask me the question, I'll answer it. But don't yell at me. Don't wave your arms at me. Don't embarrass me. And channel your aggression in a proper way to those guys on the other team wearing the other jerseys, not the black and white stripes. And I could see the light go on for Rick talking in that moment. He got it. And we developed the relationship where if I had to say to him, talk, calm down, or get your guys to calm down, keep their elbows down, that for me was the best prevention as opposed to raising my arm, blowing the whistle, stopping the play, putting the guy in a box. Now, sometimes that's the nature of the job. We have to enforce the rules, obviously. But if you can get them to play on your terms without constantly imposing yourself, uh, and, and calling the penalties, I think the game is best served. 
John, this is Dan again. I got a, a quick question for you, and I, I've noticed it through the years. And uh, without sounding like I'm pandering to you, I never noticed it with you. But I noticed that some of the officials just seem to over-officiate. Where, um, not allowing a flow? Not allowing the flow. And, and almost like the, uh, like the umpires in baseball where they want to be the focal point. I can say I've seen that. And, and, yes. and, and I, I can say over the years I felt that um, uh, an official controlled the game more than I thought. I, I don't think I ever saw that, and I'm not saying that because we're talking to Kerry. I don't think I saw that with him. But, I never but, I'll, but I'll agree. But, Kerry, do you think that happens sometimes? The official becomes a little bigger than the game itself at sometimes? I think there's a, there's a whole combination of events. First of all, we, we look for consistency. We're asked to be consistent. So the whistle being put away at certain times in the game is not being consistent. If the uh, old uh, philosophy of let them play, let the players decide the outcome of the game, what that really means to me is let them cheat. If I don't do my job, if I just put the whistle away, then I'm really compromising the integrity of the game and my own personal integrity. We have to set a standard that the players need to play within. And if the fear factor of a player not committing an infraction is the fear that they're going to get a penalty. When that fear factor is gone, it's like the inmates are running the prison. Uh, So from that end, I think we have to try and be consistent and establish a standard that the players can play within that they know they will be penalized if they break the rules, and they have to accept responsibility for that. Uh, The fact that there are uh, officials sometimes that are a little over-exuberant and and controlling. Uh, In the two-referee system and in the later stages of my career, I have a young guy with me, and I would do a scouting report on the game. We'd talk about it in the dressing room. I'd, I'd get the press notes. I'd see what the teams had done in the past, if somebody was mad at somebody else on the other side, and we'd have a little debrief or a briefing before we go out. And I would say, listen, every game has a heartbeat. It really does. Agreed. When that that puck is dropped, the heart starts to beat. Maybe the first check is going to be a little bit of a long run, but as long as the guy keeps his elbows down and doesn't really go over the line, let's let the game unfold like the flower. And so don't kill the heartbeat is what I'm really saying to that young guy. And let the game unfold before we have to impose ourselves. And because if if there's an over-officious guy that jumps in right off the bat, the game has changed. The, the, the players then decide, gosh, we're going to play a little differently. We're going to play a little softer. We're not going to go as hard because if that's a penalty right off the bat, where do we go from there? But you have to have confidence as an official, as a human being, in what you're doing, like we talked earlier, being a referee is making a decisive decision in a moment where a lot of people are yelling at you to make a decision one way or the other, and one side's going to hate your guts no matter what you do. And I think that can be an intimidating factor, and it takes a special person with a special personality to be able to handle that. Now I want to get into instant replay. Instant replay, to me, is very vital to the NHL, in particular for goals being scored. I mean, let's face it, the puck is so fast. There is such a scrum in front of the net. It is so hard to tell sometimes. And, you know, thank God they went to instant replay. But I want to kind of throw it back at you to a situation you were in in the 93 Conference Finals, uh, Leafs versus the Kings, and Gretzky accidentally raises his stick high, I think, 
hits Gilmore, Doug Gilmore in the face, draws blood. You missed the call, hard call to make. You were at a bad angle. I've seen the footage of this. I was watching it on TV before. As it happened, very difficult to make. Do you think if draw, if blood has been drawn on a play like that and there has been no call made on the ice, that instant replay would be good for something like that? Only because blood has been drawn. Yeah, I, I, I don't think... Uh, we, we have to maintain and retain the human element of officiating in all sports. We make mistakes. Dan's agree. Dan's agree with you 100 percent, and so am I at this at this moment. Ab- absolutely, Kerry. Keep going. It, it's 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 played. It's played by humans. It's officiated by humans. I am against instant replay in any sport. Well, we can't micromanage the game uh, that that often is being micromanaged. I will say, however, that the game is won and lost on the scoring of goals. And in and around the goal crease, a lot of stuff happens. It's the combat zone sometimes. Exactly. And I believe that whether the puck entered the net legally or not, should the, the there should be uh, instant replay, as we have it, uh, for determining the scoring of goals. I would say, however, that like the NFL, I would want to be the guy to make the decision on that. I want to go to a place where I can look at the replay and confirm or make a final decision with all angles on a replay on the scoring of a goal. I don't want that taken away from me on the ice to some building, uh, some room in Toronto or elsewhere. I don't get Uh, that, Kerry. Help me with that. When they came back and they instituted the instant replay, I was very happy. I'm like, great, you know, you're right. A goal is what wins the game, and there's so many variables that can occur. Why don't they allow the referees to make the call there in the building? Are there less angles? Does the war room in Toronto have more? I have to believe they're seeing that you would be seeing the same thing they're seeing. Yeah, you'd get the same footage. Uh, It just logistically, if you think of a football field, and the sidelines and the, the the safe locations, secured locations where there could be the opportunity for a referee to go under the hood and look, and and have the guy in the stadium who's working with him and directing him, and he's calling up different plays uh, that they could communicate. In a hockey arena, if you did it at the penalty box where the referee's referee crease is and the yeah. sanctity of that, there may be players in the penalty box. You've got fan viewing. Uh, the college leagues, uh, they've used it uh, at the ECAC, for example, in Atlantic City uh, in Boardwalk Hall. They had a monitor set up in the penalty box. The officials went into the box. They looked at it. They made a final decision. It took less than 30 seconds to, to determine the, uh, the right call, and the game was started again. We see as many as three. I've seen five-plus-minute reviews on, on replays that go back and forth between the war room in Toronto and the communication with the official on the ice. That's way too long. Um, I think that the guy on the ice is ultimately the one that's in charge of the game, and he should make that call. So if it's go to where the Zamboni entrance is, Open the doors, have the the monitor there in a uh, under under a hood. Let them look at it at that point, uh, and let them. I make couldn't agree call. more. You're, you're the one on the ice. You should be making the call. We're going to take another break today. My special guest is Kerry Fraver, Frazier, former NHL official. He wrote the book, The Final Call. You can find that on Amazon.com. We'll be back in a few moments. 
Valentine's Day is just around the corner, and one of the best ways to your sweetie's heart is a sweet treat from Cakes and Candies by Mary Ellen. How about cupcakes and a variety of special Valentine's flavors like pink champagne, strawberry shortcake, and chocolate peanut butter? Of course, you can always opt for the decadent chocolate-covered strawberries, or go the traditional route with mouth-watering cannolis or cheesecake. And don't forget Mary Ellen's world-famous cake pops, a delicious piece of cake dipped in buttercream chocolate on a stick. And Mary Ellen has both sugar-free and gluten-free cakes and pies. Just pre-order by calling 484-266-0710. Cakes and Candies by Mary Ellen is so good, they've been named 2013 Best Dessert and Sweets by County Lines Magazine. For daily specials, check Cakes and Candies by Mary Ellen on Facebook. Mary Ellen's shop is located on Westchester Pike near Bob Wagner's Mill Carpet. So to be a hero for Valentine's Day or any occasion, it's Cakes and Candies by Mary Ellen. It may be nice now, but the cold winter temperatures are closer than you think. It's time to take care of your home oil heating needs. Call the company who Chester County residents have been depending on for over 46 years to provide competitively priced, quality home heating oil on time and without disruption. That company is Scheller Oil. Scheller Oil is a local, family-owned, and operated full-service company serving your heating oil, gasoline, and propane needs. Give Scheller Oil a call at 610-692-3388. That's 610-692-3388. Scheller Oil Company, simply the best. Hi, I'm Terry Reeves from Battleground, and you are listening to WCHE 1520 AM. Welcome back to Life on Adam, your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Kerry Frazier. He was a former NHL official, 30 years, wrote the book, The Final Call. We are celebrating the return of the NHL today. No thank you to Mr. Gary Bettman. We will be thankful for the players themselves coming back, and for the work for the little people. Kerry and I talked about this last week. It's the collateral damage that was it's, done to the concession people, the supply people, right. the security people. But, people forget about that. But, again, I'm going, to, I'm going to play devil's advocates. It wasn't just Batman; It was also fear. Well, yeah, they, he has to do his job too. I, I, I agree, they, but they, I feel they both had to do their job. But it, it uh, but uh, I'll argue this with you, Dan, my friend. After all these years, I'll argue this. This is the third time, you. the third time in eighteen years. Yeah, that's too much. This is there's something wrong then. Yeah. Okay, we're not talking one time, one you know, twice in twenty years. This is three times in eighteen years, twice now, in seven. If baseball and football, which are way bigger in, in this country, Un- they are, unfortunately, yes. not, not in my mind. Not in our mind. No, I, we'd, I agree. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm I watching hockey first. Uh, if they can get the agreements and not have the lockouts, there's no reason for, for the owners or the players. they got to get their heads out of their butts. Yeah, that's what that's what Carrie and I were saying. And, and hopefully they got the, the agreement. I think it's for 10 years, Carrie. Is that right? Was it 10 years they agreed? Yeah, eight years. It's ten, it's ten with a, a re-up in eight. So okay, right. we know for sure we've got eight years of peace and harmony and growth potential uh, in the game to bring in new fans to this great game that we all love. Well, that's we're gonna. That's what we're all gonna hope for. Hopefully, they'll get their act together now and take the energy and promote the game, the greatest game on the face of the earth, because it is. It's got everything: speed, finesse. 
uh, violence, controlled violence, uh, size, strength. I mean, really, women love it. Look how many, look how many women. Young Johnny, girls go to, to, to NHL games. Johnny, I've done my part. I raised four children. <laughs> and, 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 Don't make me cough, man. And, and, and five grandchildren. <laughs> and they're all hockey fans. Well, And that's how I that's, raised mine. That's all I could do. That's all we could do. Kerry, in the final segment, i got a few questions I definitely want to get to. But first, I want to go back to that conference game in 93 again, that conference final game. Uh, that's something that stuck with you. Did it... Does it really still bother you that much? I mean, it really was a difficult call to make. You were shielded. The video replay shows all of that. Is it still something you feel you should have been able to make on the spot, that call? Well, we never like to. I certainly don't remember all the great calls. I remember the ones that I missed. And, <laughs> that's and, all any of us remember, Gary. That's right. You know, it's our mistakes that haunt us. And, yeah. and uh, I, um, I, I always, I never wanted to have a negative effect on a game. And in that particular case, uh, I it was in overtime. Uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs, if they won that game, uh, were, were uh, going to the finals. Uh, you know, it, it just, the stars didn't line up for me. And uh, of course, there was a game seven back in Toronto, yep. and, and Wayne Gretzky had the game of his career, as he said, got five points. And and uh, eliminated uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs in that game, but but just about the call. I mean, it had an impact. It it had the potential. There's no guarantee that the the uh, Leafs would have won. But I know one thing: Wayne Gretzky wouldn't have scored the winning goal 30 seconds or less than 30 seconds later. He would have been in the penalty box for four minutes. And, that's true. Uh, that's it, true. Uh, that's true. It, it that's really true. had an impact on on. Uh, but that's the, the game. human element, though. That's and I agree with Dan. That's the one thing I like it's, about it. There's a human element there. Now let's flash forward a couple weeks. You're at Game Three now of the finals. You have the Kings versus the Canadians, and I forget who finally decides. Hey, we're going to call Mr. Marty McSorley over. We're going to check the curvature of a stick. Now. What was your thought process as this is happening? I mean, I mean, can you see Marty's face? Is the shock there? I mean, does he know it's coming? Jacques Demers was the coach, and uh, he sent Guy Carboneau and Kirk Muller over, and they said we want uh, to measure Marty's stick. I said, okay, what are you what are you measuring? They said the curve. I said, okay. I went over to Marty. I said, Marty, I need your stick, please. Uh, they've requested a measurement. The blood drained from his face. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I looked at the stick. I went, Mar I said to him, Marty, what are you thinking? I said, I don't even have to measure this thing. I can eyeball it. It's so uh, uh, on a curve uh, beyond half inch. And I took it over. Uh, I measured it diligently a couple of times. Ray Scapinello, the linesman, uh, held the stick for me as I meticulously measured this thing a couple of times. And Gretzky was standing. I looked up, and there's Gretz standing at the edge of the referee's crease. And I just shook my head at him. I said, typically I wouldn't show a yeah. player. I said, Wayne, look at this. He just rolled his eyes back in his head, skated away. Well, of course, goal was scored, tied the game, went into overtime, another goal, and that was the end of the L.A. Kings. They were going home at that point, up two games. Yeah, that yes, was they were. Two in Montreal. Yes. And it, uh, Jacques uh, Demers and I have spoken. He said, I knew that if we went back to L.A. down two, it was over. I did, and I didn't understand because... Okay, maybe McSorley, uh, I mean, he was never a scorer. He was always an enforcer. I mean, what's he thinking? Is this going to add an extra? I mean, it could only end up bad for him. 
Oh, well, Marty was a real warrior. He's a great guy and, and to stand up for his teammates. Oh, but yeah. You know, you know what I heard after? This is going to floor you. Please. I, I heard that he said before the guys went out for the third period, check your sticks, guys. Make sure they're legal. No, jeez. Oh, Marty. I'll tell you, because when that went down, I remember watching that. You know, back then, back in, you know, 93, go back 20 years, you didn't have the kind of uh, overall coverage you have now. You had, I forget, the thing was Sports Channel. Back then in our era, and I remember watching this thing, and I'm going, thinking to myself, why would Marty McSorley, of all people, have a curved stick? Well, right. Marty McSorley, you could have put him in a penalty box but every, my time was, fear, every time he was on the ice. But my fear would be, as an enforcer, my chances of having a penalty called for a fight or whatever, someone, right. there's a chance the ref right. could you, pick up my stick. Yeah, there's no way. And no skate way, it to me. Yeah, forget about the stick. It was just amazing. Yeah, you just don't need it. Well, you know, that's one of those calls. That's one of those plays that will go down in the annals of sport, the history of oh, the yeah. game, uh, as to a game changer, a, a series changer. Uh, it wasn't a call I made. It was one that uh, Marty chose uh, to force us to make. And uh, Could you have made that coverage. call? Kerry, could you have made that call if you had thought his stick was illegal, if he had skated past no, you? No, it had to be challenged. No, it had, it had to, to be challenged. Be okay, so, so you just have to ignore that if you, if you know it's, it, it's an illegal stick. Oh, of course. Wow. Sure. See, I was you know, positive I, I had on a that stick one. measurement in uh, L.A. Yeah. Uh, the year before, uh, Mike Murphy was coaching uh, the L.A. Kings, and, and he called a stick measurement uh, on um, – Joey Mullen, second, third last game of the, the regular season. And I, I called a penalty shot. Mullen was going to take a penalty shot, and he sent his captain over to uh, make the stick re- measurement request. Uh, it had to be done before the penalty shot. Joey Mullen took the shot. He didn't know there had been a request made. Jeez. One way or the other, goal or no goal, there had to be a stick measurement. Uh-huh. And if it was legal, if the stick was legal, then the L.A. Kings were going to get a penalty unless the goal was scored. So there was some consequences to it. Well, Joey scores. He's wildly excited. He throws his hands up in the air. It's like I think he's just uh, won the Stanley Cup. I went over. I said, Joey, I need your stick, please. i got to measure it. They made a request. He said, Carrie, that was my 50th goal. I've got a bonus for $50,000 for 50 goals. I said, well, I hope your stick's legal. I went over. I measured the stick. It was illegal, clearly. I had to take the goal away from Joey Mullen. Oh, my God. Now he the never sad- got it in the next two games. See, this he, is he the thing. Kerry, uh, unfortunately, we're down to like the final 45 seconds. So I'm going to have to wrap it up. It's unfortunate. Uh, we're cut short for another thing that's coming up with my producer, Bryn. She has a show following me. But I want to say thank you for coming on. Thank you for staying in touch with me throughout this process. Thank you for allowing me to be very sick through this interview and enjoy myself anyway. And thank you for allowing my friend Dan to sit in with us. Uh, may I have you back again in the future, maybe when the playoffs roll around? I would look forward to it. And I'll tell you guys, you can catch me on tsn.ca, Monday to Friday. Great. My column is called Come On, Ref. Got it. And uh, let's, uh, let's be uh, hopeful for a great hockey season in 48 games. You got it, Kerry. Kerry, thank you so much. And I want people to go again. You can find Kerry's book, The Final Call, on Amazon.com. It is an excellent read from there. I suggest you read Thero Fleury's book uh, about his child molestation experience. Excellent reading both books. Kerry, thank you. Look forward. I hope you enjoy the game today. And I'll give you a call next week, set up lunch. Thanks, John. Look forward to it. Thanks buddy. a lot, Kerry. Bye bye. Take care, Bye, Kerry. guys.